Welcome to First State Insights, offering information, perspectives, and analysis for public policy, management, and community and economic development in Delaware. Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the Institute for Public Administration. My name is Troy Mix, and I'm Associate Director at the Institute, which is a research and public service center in the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. Thanks for tuning in today. On today's episode, we're joined by Lindsay Naylor, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences within the University of Delaware's College of Earth, Ocean, and Environment. She's also co-owner and co-founder of Musings Fermentation Underground, which is an aspiring craft brewery focused on wood-age, wild beers, and kombucha. You can purchase their kombucha on draft at Midnight Oil Brewing Company and follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Musings Fermentation. Lindsay and I have been collaborating on a study of Delaware's craft beverage industry. On April 18th, 2020, we jumped on a Zoom call to speak about the challenges faced by small producers and the opportunities for industry growth in Delaware. Let's get to the conversation. Lindsay, thanks for joining me today. Um, oh, Troy, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, ordinarily, Saturday Night Beer sounds like a great idea and even almost better in these situations. So, mm. um, so you're an assistant professor of geography at the University of Delaware. Okay. And we came to know one another actually through beer, I would say, or at least because you have a background in beer. I do. You, in, in a number of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about kind of how you came to the University of Delaware and how beer relates to your background and getting here? Yeah, so uh, I'll try to not linger over this story, but I did my master's degree in Washington, D.C. And at that time, uh, my partner, Joe Jasper, was looking for brewing jobs. And there was not the same scene in D.C. in the early 2000s as there is now. And that looks great there now. Did not look like that when we were there. And the advice we got was that, uh, that he should go to Davis and get a, you know, graduate degree in, uh, in brewing. And so we moved to Davis and did just that. And I started looking for PhD programs and I, I would not recommend this, but I picked the two programs that I applied to were in the state of Oregon because Oregon at that time had a booming craft industry. And so I picked programs to apply to based on knowing that my husband could get a job in the brewing industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I came to geography by this meandering road. Uh, One of our good friends who is actually mildly famous in Portland for creating a streetcar map of uh, all the pubs and breweries that you could get to in uh, downtown Portland. He's a geographer and he said, you know, you're asking the same questions as geographers. So why don't you apply to geography programs? And so, yeah, that, that's how I got there. And then my husband uh, brewed first for uh, Pyramid uh, in Portland, and then later for a smaller company uh, in Eugene, Oregon. And then la- our last, uh, we lived in Bend, Oregon while I was writing my dissertation. And he worked for Deschutes Brewing uh, Company, which is a fabulous, uh, was a fabulous place to live. It was a fabulous group of brewers uh, and, and a community there. And in fact, when we arrived in Delaware, there were more breweries in Bend, Oregon, which is a sort of a res- like a ski town of about 80,000 people than there were in the entire state of Delaware. 
So I, like most people uh, who want to continue in academia, uh, faced a very a shrinking job market. Uh, and I'm so, so pleased to be uh, at the University of Delaware on the tenure track. Uh, I started my job in 2015, just a year after I finished my PhD and doing a short stint at George Washington University as a uh, visiting professor. And yeah, so here I am. Here we are in Delaware. It's, it's, been, it's been really nice to see how the industry is changing and uh, how more and more people are coming into the craft beer industry here in the state and in the region more broadly. Mm-hmm. So how does uh, being, you know, interested in craft beverages, how does that relate to your research and teaching? So I uh, am primarily focused on issues of equity in food systems. And uh, I started uh, to hone, kind of, I guess, marry my interests uh, first through my research in Southern Mexico on fair trade coffee production. Uh, and I realized I'm really asking questions about sort of solidarity and ethics and equity and who has access. And that doesn't, coffee isn't the only beverage that we could be thinking about that with. I think that it's one that we think about uh, very commonly because coffee is one of the most traded commodities in the world. It's something that many people feel that they couldn't live without. Uh, and it's the uh, top commodity in that has a fair trade certification. It's still the one that uh, is most sold with the fair trade certification. So it's kind of in our faces. Like you can get fair trade coffee uh, pretty much anywhere now, right? Um, which was not the case uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, the first certification was in 1988. So that's that's sort of my, my entry point. And then uh, being, being part of the craft industry and craft community uh, as, uh, you know, first just as an interested party and being married to someone who makes beer for a living and then eventually moving uh, to Delaware and starting our own brewing company and kind of having a different role in that community made me think about how we're relating to beer as a society, uh, especially because the culture of drinking on the East Coast, for me at least, feels very different than the culture of drinking on the West Coast uh, in terms of uh, you know, being in a, like, like if we think about Newark, Delaware, where the university is, uh, it's very much a college town, you know, main street, uh, is right off of campus. Uh, we have one brewery on main street, iron Hill, uh, which is spectacular. Um, but it's harder for breweries to, uh, to come into Newark because there are concerns around underage drinking, I think, and they're valid concerns. Um, although I pass more cans of white claw, on the on my way to campus when I was still walking to campus than natural ice, which I think is what the kids are drinking these natty days. Natty ice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Natty. natty mm-hmm. ice. <laughs> sorry. I, um, I'm not as conversant in macro. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, in, in any event. Um, so it's been really exciting to see uh, those changes. And, and I've become interested in uh, really what craft means in the brewing community because uh, increasingly with the way that macro breweries are doing this, you know, this craft brewery grab. And it's very, it's very seamless if you're not paying attention uh, as a consumer. Um, very much in the same way that uh, all, like many third party certifications like fair trade or organic, it, you know, we were sort of meant to trust the labeling, right? And uh, if, you know, your Elysian beer or your 10 barrel brewing company beer, looks the same as it did yesterday, even though they now are bankrolled by Anheuser-Busch, it's hard hard to tell the difference, except for maybe the price went down a little bit. And you think to yourself, well, why would I buy this, you know, 
craft beer for, you know, $10 when I can get this one for $6. And, mm-hmm. and so it's not very transparent to the consumer. And so in the work that you and I have been doing together, some of the questions that I've been asking uh, the alcohol producers in our state is, you know, what does craft mean to them and what do they think about the industry? Mm -hmm. Uh, In response to the move by the larger brewing companies uh, to to buying up a lot of the craft breweries, uh, the Brewers Association in the United States initiated a labeling campaign. And so now... If you meet certain criteria, for example, uh, independent ownership, uh, you can have this independent craft beer seal. And one of the things that is unique about Delaware is that out of all of the states in the United States, we have 100% adoption. Mm. So uh, that's that's kind of an exciting thing to be talking with folks about and to be thinking about, sure. you know, why here? Because I'm a geographer, right? Yeah. Why is why is this happening here? And what is what is it about Delaware, about the craft community in Delaware that makes it possible? So that Brewers Association, are they all smaller brewers or is there corporate well, membership there too? Yeah, the Brewers, I mean, if, so the Brewers Association uh, is, uh, is, is for breweries. Uh, mm. It's not limited to, uh, it's not limited by size, uh, but they do have uh, sort of, I don't want to call them standards, but they have, like, they sort of say, they define what is considered craft. And and right now it's mostly, or no, that's not true. Previously, it had been how many barrels a year you produce and above a certain amount, you weren't considered craft anymore. So like Anheuser-Busch can't be considered craft because they produce way, way, way more than the the barrels uh, that are considered craft. Um, But then with the seal, uh, then there's things like independent ownership and and other features uh, that help to define craft more clearly and then signals to the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. That if you see this seal, you know that you're not buying something that's owned by a big company or well, a yeah. really, really big company. Like I wouldn't say that Dogfish Head, for example, is a small company, but they are, um, but they don't have corporate ownership. Yeah. So before... Um this seal, I mean, what was what were the ways that companies were signaling that they were craft or they were different than macro brewers? Uh, in their, you know, just in their regular the stories that they tell about themselves, which has gotten increasingly easier with social media. Uh, and I think, you know, Instagram, uh, breweries are still using Facebook to communicate a lot of their uh, activities and events uh, to the consumer. Not so much Twitter. I don't see a lot of breweries on Twitter. But people are trying to tell their story and they're trying to say, you know, we are the founders, we are the owners and uh, that matters. And, and some of this is even bound up in the local food movements that we've seen happening in, uh, you know, across the board for the, for the last decade uh, is, you know, you should support your local folks and whether that's a restaurant, whether it's, uh, you know, an independently owned business uh, like a brewery. Uh, but you know, try to drink in your watershed, for example. Sure. Yeah, I know going through what we're going through now, there, there's been that messaging to support your local businesses. And then there's been kind of almost the necessity to support your local businesses, including brewers or distillers, uh, things that you can get your hands on or pick up curbside, for instance, pretty easily. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, one of the things that I am most proud of being part of the brewing community in Delaware right now is being a part of the Delaware Brewers Guild because most states have a guild or some sort of organization that supports their brewers. 
but I, I have to just give a massive shout out to the folks that are uh, on the executive committee of the Brewers Guild and especially to Kim Wilson, who is doing everything in her power to make breweries essential businesses. Uh, you know, uh, she's been talking with our congressional uh, members, talking with the governor's office, talking with the Small Business Administration uh, to help people to understand that what we do is perhaps different because we have product that is fermenting. We have product that needs bottling. We have product that has a shelf life. And we have an investment in capital such as brew houses and stainless steel equipment and other and other tools that if not used are it's going it's going to be very bad for the business. We could come out of this uh, and I don't want to be a downer, but if we aren't careful, we could come out of this with far fewer breweries. And and that that to me, uh, both as a consumer and as an owner, is is not something that I want to see. That would we've we've really started to get some momentum and some support from the community behind the craft uh, industry uh, that you know was built on the goodwill of of Dogfish Head and Sam Caglione and his his uh, team and uh, family. Um, but we're really just starting to see everything steam forward in really nice ways. Like people have expansion plans, people have been breaking ground. Uh, and so the work that the Delaware Brewers Guild has done to show the value of our businesses and to show that uh, shutting down a brewery, you don't just like lock the door and, and, and head out. Like there's, there's, there are things that are uh, on, there are ongoing processes that need to be taken care of mm-hmm. uh, and allowing for curbside pickup uh, and any other innovations that uh, that the governor's office will allow will really help to keep people going. Like I understand uh, from our contacts in Pennsylvania that one of the things that has been most valuable to our colleagues uh, and our community in Philadelphia has been the ability to deliver to mm-hmm. people's homes. Uh, and I know that, and, and delivery is something that's starting to happen more uh, through more states. There are very few states who aren't doing that. And so any of those little initiatives that can be undertaken um, can really help and I'm not pessimistic about this. I think that we have a really good community here. And I think that people are really working hard to keep the craft community together and working towards common purpose uh, and to support each other. Like, hey, I've got, I'm going to make an order, uh, you know, shipment of bottles, let's share and things of that character as, as uh, you know, shipping, uh, shipping lines are being disrupted. Like that for me has just been the most incredible and important and impressive thing. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, weird to see all the different states acting in different ways because they have rules on the books that require them to act different ways or think about alcohol in different ways. So um, that's been something to witness just on Facebook, seeing how your friends are experiencing uh, their cocktail hour, for example, might come from different sources, um, because of that. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, I also want to say that, so, uh, so our business, uh, is we are an aspiring brewery because we need to make changes to legislation. So Mm -hmm. throughout the country and federally, uh, it's allowed to have two breweries occupying the same space in a, in a format that's called alternating proprietorship. And so right now, uh, we're housed within Midnight Oil Brewing Company, which is in Pankender Plaza, uh, next to How Do You Brew and uh, also Autumn Arch. Uh, so we've got a nice, like, community within our community, uh, all within, you know, a certain uh, radius. And that's been 
fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so to have like three breweries and a homebrew shop in the same space, like this is great. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we've been working with our state legislators, uh, particularly, uh, representative Paul Bombeck and Senator uh, Sokola to change, uh, to make a change to legislation in Delaware that would allow us to become a a legal uh, brewery in Delaware while occupying the same address as Midnight Oil Brewing Company. And they have been so phenomenally supportive. Uh, I think, so (laughs) one of the consequences, and again, everybody's experiencing this differently, but uh, we were meant to have legislation go uh, in front of of the Delaware Congress uh, a few weeks back. And to their credit, they have filed or done a pre-filing of our bill. And the fact that they have kept us on their radar speaks volumes to me about the kind of support that this community is getting. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just really deeply grateful to, um, again, the support from the Guild and the support from our members of Congress in the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So be, above and beyond, you know, impacting uh, the company you're associated with, what benefits do you think it's going to bring to the rest of the community? Uh, the legislation that, that we're working on. Yeah. Oh, so, so increasingly, I think folks are trying to figure out ways to enter the market without the massive capital outlay that starting a brewery, uh, needs. So brew houses, uh, which is the place where, you know, the, the sugar water is made that then will get fermented into alcohol, uh, in vessels later, they're quite expensive. Mm. And, uh, if you're not using it all the time, the investment might not be, that might not be the best place to put your money. And so increasingly uh, across the country, folks are sharing brew houses uh, through these alternating proprietorships uh, where someone will rent time on someone else's brew house and then ferment uh, either, you know, separately off location or within the same location uh, because legislation allows them to do that. So passing this legislation here would make it possible for more breweries to start up and to share equipment and energy and space, uh, making possible more variety and more support uh, in the system. Uh, It's our feeling at Musings that uh, having more uh, breweries in the area and having, uh, we don't really consider it competition. We consider it like everybody does well together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so we think that that would, that would enable this because I mean, who knows what it's going to look like to get a small business loan in the next 18 months. But uh, a lot of breweries, uh, fail mm. and it's because they've spent millions, uh, to invest in the equipment that is necessary, that is absolutely necessary to the work that we do. Uh, but they're not able to, to, to stay afloat, uh, in the very beginning. And so I think that this legislation will make possible, uh, more small breweries to get started, to get grounded and to not go into massive amounts of debt. Uh, and be able to weather things of this character, right? The last time I think, and someone else can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last time uh, that the brewing industry, the craft brewing industry was hit this hard by something was when the Yakima Valley warehouse went up in flames and a significant percentage of the country's hops uh, were lost people couldn't gain access to hops that didn't have contracts. And the people who most likely do not have contracts for hops are the new and very small breweries. And, you know, people were really innovative doing things that required fewer hops or using hop substitutes, such as like uh, spruce tips and things of that character. We lost a lot of breweries that Mm -hmm. year. Uh, And that was because, you know, our hop growing is concentrated in one area. Like Yakima Valley grows uh, more than 50% 
of all of the hops in the United States. And the loss of that one warehouse, one warehouse in Yakima, like was enough for many breweries to go out of business. And so being able to not have to undertake that amount of debt and uh, that, that, well, just that debt burden is a huge thing. And so this legislation will enable that. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, in the economic development world, we'd say that's kind of an incubator process and Mm. access to the equipment. And um, I imagine, you know, you don't really know if you have a good product until you get it out there at certain scale. And if you have to invest in the equipment to get it to scale, you're already kind of behind the eight ball in terms of needing to pay the bills, so to speak. Yeah. And, and there's an economy of scale too. Uh, so you're absolutely right. And, uh, and I won't, I don't want to get too deep into this, but the three tier system also is not, is not right now the, the best system for the smallest breweries. And so, you know, folks are like in Oregon, they've allowed for self-distribution and that makes it possible for these small breweries to get onto the market in different ways and in ways that doesn't cut into their bottom line the same way as distribution does. Now, distribution is important. Yeah. Don't misunderstand me. And distributors do really important and hard work. Uh, and they should, I think that they should coexist alongside the ability to like, for example, once we're brewing, if I want to bring a keg to homegrown because they've just, you know, run out of my, our, what's going to be amazing barrel aged sour beer. Mm-hmm. Like it would be really, really nice to do that instead of having to have like a three or four day lag because distributors are busy and they have, you know, number of clients they have to visit, you know, to be able to do that. And so, uh, Could I you walk that, us through the three tier really briefly? What that oh, Yes. So the three-tier distribution system means that uh, if I, the brewer, want to sell to you, the uh, liquor store or the restaurant, I have to contact a third party uh, who's licensed to do so, a distributor, and then sell it to them. And then they get a cut of that because they're doing labor. And then they sell it to you or to the restaurant or what have you. And so it's meant to... Uh, keep things separate, right? Uh, and uh, for example, uh, if we want to sell our beer when we have it to a midnight oil brewing company, we would need it to leave the premises right now under current law. Excuse me, we would need it if they, if they wanted to put our beer on tap. We would need to sell it to a distributor, and it would have to leave the premises for like 24 hours or some. There's a number of value put on that. And then they could sell it to Midnight Oil and then Midnight Oil could put it on tap, even though we're in their warehouse. Gotcha. So that's, that's how the three-tier distribution system works. Um, and they take a 30% cut gotcha. generally. That's on average, you know? And that's, I mean, everybody needs to stay in business, right? Like this is no way me saying distributor's bad, right? Distributor's important. But there, again, that is a system that is built on an economy of scale that many breweries do not have, right? Mm-hmm. It is a system that works phenomenally well for the Anheuser-Busch's. It is a system that works really great for medium-sized and large-sized breweries. Uh, But for the smaller brewer, it's uh, helpful if if the distributor is excited about your product and wants to get it out there, Uh, but it can also be a hindrance. Gotcha. Yeah, so before I finish mine, we should talk about the beers that we're drinking. Oh, yes. Let's do Um, that. You go first. I've been talking a lot. um, I have a Kolsch from Be Here Brewing in... Avondale, Pennsylvania. It's the first time I've had it. It's called Schools Closed Kolsch. Oh gosh, that's on the nose. <laughs> Very depressing, but it's actually quite good. It's refreshing. Well, I guess I'm not, I'm, uh, maybe I'm not so be- so much better with names. I am drinking a Cataclysm. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
uh, which is uh, Yours the is very just first, generally depressing, <laughs> right? So this is the very first packaged product uh, from Midnight Oil Brewing Company. It's a double IPA. Uh, I have to admit, I actually am sharing the uh, the sixteen ounce can with uh, my partner. Mm-hmm. So that I can be lucid for our talk because <laughs> it's nine yeah. percent uh, alcohol. Beer. Yeah, yeah, it is nine percent alcohol. It is fantastic, and I was uh, really proud to be there uh, doing a QC on the day that uh, Iron Heart Canning Company. Uh, they're a small, again, another small business that they bring their canning equipment to uh, breweries and they can for you with the cans that you provide and the beer that you've made, uh, and they're great. Uh, I was just really proud to be there on that, on that day, the very first day of packaging. And there's only a few left folks. So if you want to try some cataclysm, uh, drop, drop by a uh, minute oil brewing company. It's very nice. Um, uh, sort of East coast style IPA, uh, for me as a drinker, sorry, that sounded like as a drinker, um, for the person that's drinking it right now, yes. uh, it's got some nice, uh, tropical notes and, it smells uh, kind of fruity and grassy to me. Not as grassy as like a West Coast IPA. Uh, and then it's got a sweet finish. Uh, it's not, so for folks who are like, oh, no, not IPAs. It's got a really nice uh, malty finish. So, okay. uh, yeah, well, that's I, what I'm I have doing. to admit, like I've over a couple decades, I've learned to like beer, enjoy drinking beer, but I have not learned how to talk about Beer. I know what I like, but how does one learn to talk about beer and what it tastes like? Uh, sensory training. So I am married to a sensory expert. Uh, my husband, Joe Jasper, uh, and my partner in Musings Fermentation Underground is uh, an official judge for the Great American Beer Festival. And you have to be like nominated and vetted and people have to write you letters of recommendation to, to gain uh, that uh, position. Uh, but Really, uh, it took years of training in sensory. So Joe started a sensory program at this small brewery in Eugene. And, and, and actually, this is going to sound awful, but it's, it's really training yourself on how to identify off flavors at first. And so, uh, and I participated in sensory panels and it is unpleasant. <laughs> because it involves uh, drinking a beer that has been spiked with uh, vanilla or something, or that somebody has left out in the sun to mimic what um, oxidation tastes like. Uh, it's, you know, adding uh, like butterscotch flavoring to mimic the, the, the taste of diacetyl, which is uh, something that develops in a beer if it's been, uh, if it's ferment, it's, if it's not done fermenting and has been, uh, packaged, uh, before it's ready. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's what we've been doing. And, and, uh, Joe has been doing this, you know, he's, uh, professionally trained, um, uh, graduate educated in, in this. And so sensory was part of his education. Uh, so he's been doing this for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I'm learning, I learn alongside him. I'm definitely nowhere near where he is, but we have started doing some sensory panels, uh, at midnight oil. And so that's, that's how I've learned to talk about beers by having conversations with my partner about beer and by tasting beer. I also once judged a homebrew competition, less homebrewers. They're making some good stuff, but some, yeah. sometimes it's hard to drink <laughs> for a competition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just by, uh, generally, you know, tr- trying new things. And, uh, so yeah, uh, I mean, you can talk about beer however you want, Troy. That's good. 
<laughs> I don't feel guilty. It sounds like a lot of work to be really. It is a lot of work. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, obviously I'm a very proud partner, but yeah, it's, it's fun work though. Uh, I you know, there's a, a lot of a light lager for, that's good for a sunny day. So that's, that's perfect. That's See, that's the, you should do, do uh, marketing labels. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So could we talk a little bit about the work that we did together? So you talked, you said you talked to a lot of the beverage producers in Delaware. What did you find that was kind of working for them and what were some of the challenges that they faced before this current crisis? Yeah. So, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed doing this work and it's been really great to, to talk about all of these things. And I appreciate you extending me the opportunity to work on this project, by the way. Uh, so yeah, I have managed to talk to most of the people, uh, who are producing alcohol with a license. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not hanging out in people's kitchens in the state. And mostly I think people want to have the ear of the consumer, also the stomach, I suppose, but, uh, or the liver in this case. Uh, <laughs> I'm not funny. I'm sorry. Uh, but they, specific. that's good. <laughs> But people, especially with the craft brewery grab, and I keep referring to Anheuser-Busch, but I do mean AB InBev, the whole big conglomerate company. It's just easier for me to say AB. They're you know the parent company to Budweiser and, and lots of other things that don't maybe look like they're Budweiser, but are. The craft brewery grab has created quite a stir. Uh, and I haven't just been talking to breweries. I've been talking to wineries, distilleries, and meaderies as well. But we have more breweries in the state than we do of those other industry or parts of the industry. And so my focus and my interest has primarily been there, but they really want consumers to know that they're different and they want to be able to differentiate their brand and they want people to enjoy their beer and to understand why it's, why it's different and why it should be valued and why they should support them. Uh, you know, they're not suggesting you can't enjoy, you know, a nice light lager produced by a big company, you know, after a day of mowing the lawn. Oh, gosh, I hope it doesn't take a whole day to mow the lawn, but a day of gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, but they want to be able to differentiate themselves and to be valued in the community. And that, I think, is the biggest hurdle. Is not that people don't care. It's that uh, it's hard to communicate that. Uh, you know, if you go into a restaurant and you order a beer you know, do you think about where it came from? Like, and this is a question we ask about food as well. Um, do you have the luxury of thinking about where it came from? And, and so that is the biggest thing that I think has come up across uh, conversations. The other thing is being able to direct people to, uh, to places. So again, I'm just going to use Oregon as an example because it's what I know best. I've, I've lived in Oregon for uh, five or six years. And they are a very, very robust signage and uh, sort of uh, passport program, which Delaware is just beginning to develop, had a great meeting with the tourism office, the Delaware Brew Trail. Oh my gosh, these people are amazing. So fantastic. Really want to support the industry. If something happens, they're like, let us know. We'll put it on our news site. And there's an app. You can download it, the Delaware Brew Trail. Uh, Or no, is that what it's called? Hold on. They've changed the name recently. I'm looking at my phone right now. Delaware on Tap. It's now called Delaware on Tap. And it's for all of the alcohol producers in Delaware and can direct you to them and you can check in and you can win fabulous prizes uh, once you've uh, reached a certain number. But uh, so that's something that's really great. But for example, if I wanted to go out into the Lamette Valley in Oregon and taste wine, 
I could actually just get on the road and be directed by signs from the tourism office. Like, Hey, there's a winery. If you get off at this exit, Oh, you should take a right. And it's two miles down the road. Oh, keep going this way. Uh, and so the tourism offices in, 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 in many places have really done a good job of directing people to these places and making it visible, like grown here, mm-hmm. right? Like you're about to go experience something that is from your community. Or if you're an out-of-state visitor, come see what we're doing here. It's awesome. And so that's something I think that, you know, is, is on maybe down the road, not to use that metaphor. Uh, you know, everybody is changing differently and attitudes are changing. But that, that was another big concern. And that was across the board, distilleries, wineries, meaderies. They just want to be seen. Uh, and if you don't have, for example, a restaurant attached to your business, it's a lot harder, right? right? And so they want, uh, especially uh, in the beach community, they receive so many tourists uh, every year. Wouldn't it be great if those tourists went to, to local breweries, right? Sure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, picked up a growler to enjoy at their... I'm not going to advertise for vacation rentals, but like one of those kind of vacation rental things. And so that's something too that, uh, and, and people are, they're excited to be brewing in these communities. They're excited to bring their product to the public. They're just struggling with that, that recognition piece. Gotcha. I know one of the things uh, that you focused on was kind of supply chain and you had mentioned like so many brewers getting their hops from the Pacific Northwest how has that evolved over the last few years in terms of where people get product? So uh, without getting like super geographical, uh, hops can only be grown in certain parts of the world. Like we are, there is an experimental program at the university right now in the College of Ag and Natural Resources that the when last I heard was at least the infrastructure component was being run by Mike Popovich to see if we can grow hops in Delaware. But there's kind of a, a happy hop growing band and it's not just because Oregon and Washington are cool and they grow hops, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. there's specific environmental conditions. So hops are being sourced primarily from those regions, Australia, New Zealand, they're the top producers of organic hops in the world and hops are grown in Germany. The United States surpassed Germany in hop production a few years back. And, and so those things necessarily just by virtue of the environmental conditions that are required have to come from those places. Uh, how they get to Delaware is usually through larger scale distribution or through kind of peer to peer sales. So, you know, you can, there's the lupulin exchange. So people are like, Hey, we ordered way too much cascade and it's not going to be fresh by the time we can get to it. Who wants to buy it at a below market price? So there's that kind of Craigslist activity um, that happens as well. Um, but mostly folks are getting stuff through the brewer supply group and then also through other, you know, shipping channels. Uh, if we want to get fruit, so one of the things that we can do because it's not alcoholic is Musings produces kombucha. And if we want to get fruit uh, to fruit our kombucha, it's coming from Oregon as well. Okay. Not because we don't want to buy local, but uh, because if we need f- fruit puree, that's sort of uh, the hub uh, of where f- fruit puree for, uh, for production is, is centered. And then the increasingly though, there's been a movement, especially after uh, the 2008 recession to grow grains locally. And so one of the things that was most exciting to us when we got here was to find that there are multiple local grain suppliers. So proximity malt 
is uh, right here. Uh, and so we can buy uh, right in Laurel, uh, the, right? Sorry, the larger, yeah, they're in Laurel. They, we, you know, the larger brewing community can buy basically from our, from our backyard. The, there are larger companies and they, again, they're being funneled through these uh, brewers uh, supply channels. Uh, but a lot of that grain comes from uh, Canada and then there's specialty grains that uh, come from Germany. So again, beer, depending on the style of beer you're making, there are very specific ingredients that you want to put in it. And so uh, you might need a malt that, or a, a, a grain that's malted that comes from a particular place. But, uh, but it's really exciting that we can get Turo, which is uh, the basic malt for most, like it's the foundational malt for most beer recipes right here. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So that wasn't happening when, you know, there was not the level of microbrew craft brew activity that there is now. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, uh, you've heard me say this before, but it was only recently that the United States surpassed pre-prohibition levels of breweries in operation. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, prohibition really hurt the industry and it had been on a decline and then flattened. And then craft beer suddenly became really popular. Uh, you know, Anchor Steam is credited with um, starting to bring people's attention to, hey, beer can have flavor. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's been yeah on the rise since, but it's only in the last five years that we've seen the same level of breweries in operation as we did in the early twenties or the early 1900s. So I know, I mean, there's also things like cans or however you're packaging your beer. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole lot of things that could be disrupted. I mean, what does the disruption look like now? Yeah. I mean, the biggest disruption and the thing that we were talking about the most before uh, you know, pre-pandemic was the tariffs that uh, the president uh, put on uh, steel. Mm. So breweries function on stainless steel equipment, like pretty much. I mean, you know, we also plan to use uh, uh, barrels that previously held wine or rum or whiskey uh, for aging, but we need stainless steel uh, for kegs. We need it for fermenters. We need it for, uh, for serving vessels. Uh, we need it for brew houses and it became prohibitively expensive for folks. And now, right now it's a decrease in draft sales, right? Uh, a lot of small breweries don't package, right? Like I, I said, midnight oil package for the very first time, you know, now we're trying to figure out how to package in a facility that is not built for packaging, right? Like we brought in a company, we brought in Ironheart, but their, you know, their bandwidth is only so much, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and everybody wants to package right now because of the decrease in draft sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is a huge, a huge deal. Uh, so like if I were speaking to the public, I'd say, go get your growler filled. Like mm -hmm. go, bring yeah. your growler, get it filled. Um, that is the single most helpful thing I think that folks could be doing for breweries right now. And also for, so a lot of breweries are not operating as restaurants. And so uh, this has a, uh, everybody's being affected, right? But this has a multiple like uh, domino effect because uh, for uh, brewery, breweries like uh, Midnight Oil, like Autumn Arch, they rely, we rely on food trucks. Mm -hmm. And those food trucks rely on customers being at the brewery uh, in order to, to do that. And so one of the things, uh, at least that Midnight Oil has been doing, is they have a food truck that is there during the hours they're open for growler fills and they're combining efforts, which... I mean, the way that small businesses are coming together during this is, is what's giving me hope, mm -hmm. I have to say. And so, you know, you can go and get a pizza right now and get a growler fill and, you know, get a discount on one or both or the other. And that, 
has been important, but nobody, nobody's doing okay. Right. Uh, everybody all, I mean, we're on a call with the Brewers Guild almost weekly talking about like different things that people are trying, uh, what online ordering systems might look like, uh, how we can push for changes in legislation to just maybe temporarily so we can weather this better. But again, moving forward as a community. And that for me has been what's most incredible is we're all working together to, to make it so that when we emerge from this, the same number of breweries I talked to during our research are still there. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully ready to grow even more. I mean, I, I do think that people are going to be really excited to get back to, to their, uh, their familiar or maybe new, new places. Yeah, uh, and I a hope new place to breweries. hang out with people, not just pick up something yeah. um, and have it at your home. So yes, when it's okay to take, you know, a game off of the shelf at Mineral Brewing Company and bring it for many hands to touch. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. And again, that's, it's going to be, it's going to be some time. So we just have to um, think about, you know, there's no going back. So how can we be innovative and creative and thoughtful and caring going forward? If, you know, the major problems before were, you know, X, Y, and Z, how can we both address some of those, those issues while also uh, helping folks recover, I guess. Yeah. Sure. But I am hopeful. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's good to hear that the community is coming together uh, right now. And I can't say enough good things about the, the members and the leadership of the Delaware Brewers Guild. Like we are so lucky, even though we're not technically a Delaware brewery yet, like we're a hundred percent in. That's great. Well, I didn't run out of questions, but I did run out of beer, Lindsay. So that uh, probably signals the end then. <laughs> it might be a good time to end. So <laughs> Thanks for uh, joining me today. This is really informative and I'm glad to hear you're hopeful about the future. I am hopeful and I have to say this is the best thing I've done all week. It's been great to have a beer with you and to chat about this stuff and to be able to uh, talk to an audience about just like how great the breweries in in this community are. So thank you for giving me that platform. Thank you, Lindsay. As a reminder to listeners, this episode was recorded on April 18th, 2020. To learn more about the Delaware Brewers Guild, search for them on Facebook. To stay up to date on Lindsay and Musings Fermentation Underground, follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Musings Fermentation. That's all we have for this episode. I'm Troy Mix from the University of Delaware, IPA. To learn more about IPA, you can visit us at bidenschool.udel.edu slash IPA. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you'll join us again soon for more First State Insights.